with the guys uh, over the weekend. Um, um, just hearing your si just hearing your si hearing you sing and uh, them sing was uh, particular encouragement to me. I, I love it when I hear our own people sing. I, I just love to hear the church sing. So uh, that that is phenomenal. Um, I, I am also thankful just for as um, Charlie mentioned, just the laughter. I, your, your, opening, your, your opening was great, Stephen. I, I, I know I love that um, because it's real, it's authentic, and you have a really good pastor. And you know, you don't. It's it, he won't say, of course, about himself, uh, which is part of what makes him a great pastor. But um, when you know when you know a guy in ministry, and you know what he stands for, and what he's doing with his own family, and what he's doing with his church family, his commitment to Christ and the Scriptures. Um, it's becoming a rarer and rarer thing, and the fact that you get to enjoy that with him together is cool, and then you can laugh, uh, and you can be yourselves, and I think that is that is part of what makes a church family uh, such a special place. So uh, I was thankful, too, that he got corrected on the directions. That was, that was fun, because uh, he gave me directions to the hotel after the conference yesterday, and it was a five-minute trip, but we pulled in around 3 a.m. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, no, it was, it was uh, fantastic. So if, you, if you have a Bible, um, we're going to look in the book of Habakkuk today. Uh, that was read for us uh, this morning. Uh, Habakkuk, we're going to start in, in chapter 1. We're going to do the whole thing, but um, I know it's a, it's a bit of an odd place to be uh, for a one-off. Um, and uh, full disclosure, I, I preached in Habakkuk with my own church family over the past five weeks. And um, I, I got um, a lot of feedback. We hadn't ever really been to the Minor Prophets before as a church, and we decided to try it. And uh, we were very, I think we were all, as a church family, we were pretty uh, astounded by how much Habakkuk seemed to have to say to us today. And that's why I thought it might be a good exercise just to think through it with you. And maybe uh, over the next couple of weeks, um, you know, maybe a process uh, in your own uh, reading time uh, to read through and finish it. But it was read, uh, the end of it was read, and we'll look at the end of it at the end of the time this morning. Uh, but Habakkuk, uh, chapter one, do you, you say Habakkuk or Habakkuk? How many are Habakkuk people? How many are Habakkuk people? No, no Habakkuk. No, no okay, good. Before, I mean, my church, we had a split uh, over, it. Um, over it. So uh, <laughs> you split over the carpet. Color choices, right? We split over Habakkuk. Uh, but uh, anyway, Habakkuk uh, 1. Uh, we'll, we'll look at the first 11 verses, then we'll look at Habakkuk 3 uh, at, toward the end here. And so I'm going to just go ahead and read uh, the first 11 verses of Habakkuk. And uh, we'll, we'll be off. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. 
They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind, and they go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Lord, we, we, pray Lord we, we pray this morning that you will um, illumine your word by your spirit and in our hearts, Lord, that you'll help us to apply the things that we're listening to and that your spirit would change us more into the image of Christ as we go forth from this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, what, what I've been so uh, struck by in, in reading a book like this is the way in which God and a prophet get along. And it's not the way you would normally think. Because I, when I normally thought of the prophets, um, I thought of them someone like Habakkuk. They know their Bible, they know God, and um, even though they may be looking at things that might be disconcerting and, and, a, and a little bit crazy as they look at the culture, that they come along and that they would just you know, figure things out. And when you start to read the book of Habakkuk, what you see in a prophet, he's trying to make sense of the world that he's looking at. He looks at the violence of the world. He looks at the strife. He looks at what's happening to his own people, and he starts to ask really deep and profound questions to God, but it's a complaint. It's a complaint. He's taking all that complaint straight to God. And what you notice God doing through the book of Habakkuk is God is answering. So the book kind of goes like this. There's a complaint that Habakkuk makes, and then God gives an answer. Then there's another complaint that Habakkuk makes because the first one just wasn't enough. And so God then gives him an answer. And then at the very end of the book, it ends in chapter 3 like a psalm, where Habakkuk is basically singing out back to God a praise to him as he comes to a realization of the way God is going to work, even in the midst of circumstances that he cannot understand. And that's why I think it's such a great book for us because it's like, you know, you look at the state of things in the world, you maybe look at the state of things in your own family, and you might wonder, God, are you really at work? God, have you taken your hand off of this thing? Have you turned your face aside? It seems like up is down, left is right, east is west, north is south. It just nothing makes any sense. And you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a tremendous temptation to think that when life doesn't make any sense, God must not be doing anything. But nothing could be further from the truth. And that's what God is showing Habakkuk through this book. That he is indeed working, but he's working in a way that's going to blow his mind. And so I think this morning what I want to think with you about for just a few minutes as to how God is going to do that through the first complaint and then we're going to end really at the, the, the last uh, chapter, the last three verses, just to see how he turned that. He turned, he turned from a person who was complaining before God to someone who was confident before God, who was taking his complaint upward to God to, to one who was standing in front of God saying, okay, even though I don't understand, I'm going to praise you, and I believe. Because I think there's enough in this book when you start to think about your own lives and what you're going through that you, may be, you might be in some small way saying some of the same things to God, like, I just don't get this. It's funny. Here I am before, before Tuesday, right? And, and this is like a week in our culture where everything will seem to go topsy-turvy for a while. You know, I mean, it's no secret. It's that way in the entire country. I'm out from Ohio, and 
like you can't even watch TV without like literally wall to wall political ads. And they're all saying the same thing. It's like catastrophe will come if the other side isn't elected. Catastrophe will come if that side's elected. So, you know, if you're a little kid, you walk away and say, well, catastrophe is going to come one way or the other, I guess. But it, nothing can be further from the truth because God's still at work. And the same thing was happening in Habakkuk's day. God was still at work. And so here's Habakkuk, though. He's a temple prophet. He's educated. He knows the right answers. And yet he's taking his complaint to God. And that's really, I think, the first point here in verses 1 to 4. If I were just to put it one point, I'd say it like this. You know, if you're going to move from complaint to confidence, and that's really the movement of the whole book, in your own heart, if you're going to move from complaint to confidence, the first thing you have to do in your complaint, or what you say before God, is to actually talk to him and take it straight to him. That's actually what Habakkuk does here. He takes his complaint straight to God. That's, that's not such a bad thing. Because I think a lot of us might say, you know, well, I don't, maybe God might turn, he might not want to listen to what I have to say. Well, if you think about the depth of what Habakkuk is saying, my guess is you're not going to say much worse than he says. And here God receives it and tracks along with him everything that comes out of his mouth. doesn't mean what he's saying is true, but God isn't turning him away. So the pain you see in his complaint here, it gets very, very personal, as it does for us. Now, you have to see here, he's, he's, he's saying something here where he's going through a discouragement, and, and that is totally normal. He's going through this discouragement with the Lord, and, and the Lord is allowing him the freedom to say what is in his own heart. He's not stopping him. And I think one of the things that's the hardest for people to do, especially in church, you know, you might feel like, well, what I have to say to God has to be right on and sophisticated, and certainly what I might say, I, I, I would maybe say in front of everybody else, and I, I couldn't take a complaint to God. Well, actually, the Lord invites that. The Lord invites the process of change by listening to what's honestly on your heart because he already knows what's there anyway. So the invitation is to say it. And that's actually the best thing you can do to start to change a complaining heart is actually start to verbalize it out loud. And here God is allowing him the freedom to do this. Again, not condoning the fact that there could be things that are wrong being said about God, but he's allowing his, his prophet just the same way to speak to him. He says, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you so idly look at wrong? You see here how bold Habakkuk is when he cries out, How long? How long? It's a burden. He says, You make me see iniquity. You're standing idly by and you're doing nothing. How is this possible? He actually goes a little bit deeper here in verse 4 and he says, You know, the law is paralyzed. What it's supposed to be doing, it's not really doing, God. Because the lawless people are winning, and the people who seem righteous are not. Isn't it supposed to be the other way around? Well, there must be something with the law, something wrong about it, because it's paralyzed. You see, he's really starting to get pretty deep here, and I don't think this is a kind of, uh, well, he's just kind of popping off saying something. There's something really deep happening in his own heart and life because he's wondering about the passivity, or at least his perceived passivity 
about God. And certainly God is not passive, and the law is not paralyzed. You know, the function of the law for the person when they heard it is actually happening here with, uh, with Habakkuk, ironically. What the law is supposed to do is to reveal your heart. That is, when you read, let's say, the Ten Commandments, you start to see, as you go down each one of those commandments, how wrong you get it. And that's the function of the law. The law is a revealer of the heart. And so as Habakkuk is reflecting on these things, He's saying the law is paralyzed. Actually, no, Habakkuk, the law is actually working the way it's supposed to because it's revealing you. Just because you're a prophet, you stand in the temple, and people look to you for spiritual guidance doesn't mean the law somehow stops working when you don't understand. Oh, no, the law is still working, and God is still working. But the actual thing that the law is doing right now, it's revealing you. And that's one of the functions of the law, I think, when you look back in the Old Testament. That's, I think, the hardest for the people of God to take. Because they were using the law in kind of a righteous way. You know, we keep it, we do it, we make ourselves different, and God blesses. And they use that kind of blessing as a feeling of almost self-righteousness. They look at the law like a stepladder. They look down on people. But one of the things the law is supposed to do at the very start is supposed to humble you because you realize you're imperfect. That you need to reach out for the grace of God to rescue you from the destruction that comes when you break his law. And as you do that, you realize God's grace, that he gives you blessing to go through another day. And when you embrace him by faith, then the law becomes your sanctifying tool in a thank you version back to him like, yes, God. Of course I want to honor you. Of course I want to keep your commands. Because I realize those are the things that are going to lead me to life. Because he put these things in place for a reason. But the first thing it's supposed to do is break your heart. And that wasn't necessarily what Habakkuk was understanding. He had missed a little bit in the equation here. But I think if you're ever going to change a complaining heart, you've got to start by taking that complaining heart straight to God. Now, things are bad in Judah. You know, and I, I think... You know, what you're going to see here throughout the book of Habakkuk, if you, if you read it on your own, things are bad and, and, and the life uh, of, the, of the nation is, is going in a direction that nobody is particularly happy with. Josiah is gone. It's taken exactly one generation for things to get so horrible that his own son Jehoiakim is now tearing down pretty much every good reform he had ever made. I think, Steve, you're going through Kings, is that right? So, you know, that's, that's part of the backstory in the history, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, destructive things that were happening within the household of the people of God that got to a point in the nation where God was going to judge them, and he was going to use another nation to do that. It happened to be the Babylonians. And at the time the book of Habakkuk was written, the Babylonians were knocking at the door. This was probably around 600 B.C. Jerusalem was going to fall in 586. And so here's Habakkuk speaking about these marauders that are coming. They're knocking at the door. This thing is not going well. And he thinks, you know, God, your, your, what your job is is to take care of them. No, actually the problem was inside the nation itself. And he was actually going to use them to take care of his own people. And when I mean take care of, I don't mean take care of in a good way. It was going to get really, really bad. But see, that's part of Old Testament history that becomes, I think, very instructive for us. Because God, you know, while, yes, looking upon, you know, like the iniquity of the people and the nations and all that kind of thing is, 
is, um, is part of the process. It's not as if he turns his eyes away from the conduct of his own people. He cares about that too. And he says basically to Habakkuk, listen, I'm going to blow you away. I, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. Even if I told you. In fact, that's what it says here. For I'm going to do a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And you're a prophet. You hear all kinds of things. You're supposed to believe even more than the rest of the people. But I, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And so I, I just find it fascinating here. As God is graciously intervening in Habakkuk's life, he's bringing him along. He's bringing them along in the process. I'm going to tell you some things. I don't think you're going to believe it, but I'm going to tell you anyway that this is part of God's plan for the people, uh, for the nation. But don't, you know, don't start going down this road where all you do is complain and complain and complain, and that's where you stay. Because that's really easy for people. Just complain, 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 and that's all. That's, that's, that's basically a modus operandi. You know... <laughs> I went through this with um, some, some, of, uh, some of my own people. Just, we, we talked about it. Um, and, and you hear a phrase, and, and I won't repeat the phrase, but like, you know, the world of the, the country or whatever is going, you know, we're in a handbasket. Okay? And I always ask the question, what's a handbasket? I don't know what a handbasket is. What is a handbasket? Don't, don't answer it. It's like a mythical creature for me. A handbasket, you can fit the entire world into it, and it's going somewhere. And we don't know where it's going, but it's going there. But a handbasket. But a handbasket. Okay, fine. It's like Narnia. You know, whatever you put in the handbasket, you know, it's like the closet. But here's the thing. You know, you, you can complain. You can, you can do all that. And people are listening to what you're saying. People are listening. Some people are. I think the people who are most, the most affected are, are people who are younger than you. They listen to all your complaints. And I think it's having a serious effect on people who are part of younger generations when they hear the older generations complain about the state of the world. Because they hear those, because they hear those complaints and maybe they say something back to their friends like, what's the point then? Why try? I mean, there's no hope. This thing's hopeless. You know, it's not hopeless. Because God hasn't stopped working. He just might be doing some things that don't, don't particularly make any sense to you when you look at the state of the world. But it's not as if he's not working. And the best thing you could possibly do is to take your complaint to God first and get it out. Get it out privately. Your, your family, your small group, your church family will be the better for it. Imagine. Imagine if you took all your complaints and you said them so much to God you were complained out. And then you didn't have anything to say. How much of a blessing that would be. Think about it. Think about it. You you bless your small group. You know you do just oh yeah. That's that's Joey. He complained. He stopped. What do you do with it all? What do you do with it all? Took it to God. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. He took all of his complaints to God, and you know what happened? He started his life started to change. You know why? Because God took him. God started to change his heart. You know that's the thing. God can change a complaining heart into confidence. He can. But the first step you have to take is to take that to God. Take it to God. Verbalize it out loud. You might find that some of your complaints sound completely illogical when you verbalize them out loud. You might find yourself so far afield from how God actually is when you start speaking straight to him. I even wonder if that was going on with Habakkuk when, he, when the words came out of his mouth. 
but you have to be very, very but you have to be very, very careful the unintended consequences of complaining publicly. The more you do, the more impact you might have in a bad way than you realize. Best thing you could do is take it to God. Now, verses 5 to 11, I think what, what God is going to do here, he's going to move Habakkuk along in his faith by answering him. And like I said before, he's going to answer him in a way where he basically says, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. But God is going to track him along in his faith. He's going to grow him. And the first thing that Habakkuk had to do was he had to look away from himself. He had to look away from himself. He says, look among the nations. Look among the nations. Stop looking at you. Stop looking at your own countrymen and women, because that's all you seem to be doing. And look around the world first. Okay? Once you start doing that, you'll realize that I am about to do something in the world that will blow your mind. And he shows us his magnificent presence in the world, among peoples of the world, and how he's working. The fact is, he's not, it's not as if he's inactive. He's active everywhere. But we can become so myopic about our own problems that we must think God's not working because something's not coming together in my time, in my way, according to my plan. So there must be something wrong with God. And what God, what God says to the back, he says, look around. Look around. He's moving rapidly and decisively outside of the nation. In Habakkuk's day, he's moving by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Nothing's escaping his notice. And the picture here of the Babylonians who were coming was scary and it was sobering. Their attitude was bitter. Their armies moved like a hurricane. They were a law unto themselves. They devoured people like uh, the evening wolves. They, the only authority that they answered to was their own. From a historical standpoint, the rise of the Babylonians is, is swift. It's destructive. They ransacked Jerusalem. It's like 9-11 times 1,000. Okay, what happened in Jerusalem was so devastating to the nation. The ransacking of the temple, their spiritual center gone, people dispersed, displaced, cities in ruin, things burned to the ground. It's, it's hard to even fathom. Because, like, what do I complain about? Well, my... My coffee was a little not hot enough today, you know. And it wasn't. <laughs> and it wasn't. But, I drank it anyway. but I drank it anyway. I overcame, you know. Um, and, and that's the thing. Like, I, I'll just make fun of myself, you know. I have a low threshold for pain. So I read about this in history, and I, I, I can't even make heads or tails of it. So this thing's knocking on the door. And God is saying, I'm going to do a work, and I'm actually going to use those people to judge my own people. And there was a realization that came along with this. It was kind of the, the worst-case scenario for the prophets. And, and here is here's God, and this, this is the thing. In the midst of the judgment that was to come, because he's going to judge the Babylonians too, they're going to rise and fall. But in the midst of the judgment of God, he always gives glimmers of hope. He always does. In fact, if you go to verse 11, you, you, you see a glimmer of hope. Then they sweep by like the wind. He's talking about them, and they go on. But what does he call them? Guilty men. Guilty men. It's not as if they're innocent in the eyes of God. It's not as if they're a tool in God's hands, and somehow they're going to get away with it. It's not true at all. They're guilty men whose own might is their God. You see, the Lord doesn't stand for people who worship idols. He's going to take care of them. He's, he's going to judge them. And they are guilty. But not before they're going to be used 
as a tool in his own hands to accomplish his purposes. God will defeat every idolatrous, idolatrous thing that competes for him and his attention. You realize, and what's amazing about God is that he used, he, he used Nebuchadnezzar, the king, right? The king of uh, the Babylonians. He used him in a, in a very, very specific way. You read the book of Daniel. That's the, that's the picture that you get about Nebuchadnezzar. His, his God was his own might. You remember at the height of Nebuchadnezzar's power? He is a law unto himself. At the height of his power, he says, he says in Daniel, is this not Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power? And then he's driven mad like an animal. God took his mind. He took his mind. He took his body. By the end of that evening, he was grazing in the grass. He was eating acorns. He was howling at the moon. Do you know why? Because God has the power over our minds and in our hearts and our bodies. And if a person is standing and shaking their fist to him, it's not as if he doesn't hear it. You know, there might be people who stand and shake their fist and, you know, they might be very successful and look very happy and seem like they're getting away with it. That might happen. And there's some people like Nebuchadnezzar who God would not stand for. And God drove him right into the ground and had him slithering around in the grass for a while and then raised him back up in his time. Do you know why? Because Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the most powerful person on earth, even though he thought he was. There is no political ruler that is the most powerful person on earth, even if they think they are. Because the Lord's in heaven and he judges. The Lord sees everything that's happening, especially when things don't make any sense. And so for Habakkuk here, he's getting a lesson. They are guilty men. They won't get away with it. But the process of sanctification is a wonderfully complex and humbling process, isn't it, for all of us? And if you think about it, you th think about how God is working here through the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar and then through the Persians with Cyrus. And then, you've, and you take it forward to the Greeks with Alexander the Great and then you move to the Romans. And how was God working that he was going to accomplish his plan. He was going to use the biggest killers in history to do it. He was going to use people who made killing an art form. And he was going to put his own son right in the center of that torture chamber. And he was going to accomplish salvation through it. It made no sense to most of the people who knew their Bibles. They couldn't figure it out. Because as they looked at life and they looked through the lens they normally view life with, how could it be? Why do you think Jesus died with so very few people still naming his name? Nothing made sense. And yet that was God's wise, eternal plan. Even if I had told you, you wouldn't believe it. Do you know why? Because I am more eternally wise than you. I judge in wrath, but I'm judging my own son. And I am more compassionate than you could ever believe. You've come to break my law, yes. But I'll put my arms out. In your realization by faith, I'll embrace you. And I'll give you a grace that you couldn't believe. I'll give you a love and a blessing that would blow your mind. You just come to me. That's what he's saying here. That's the book of Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk gets this lesson. You know, I, I think it's just fascinating because as you read ahead in, in your Bible to the end, to the book of Revelation, we find that in a sword, in a sword, there's a, there's a final kind of rebellious, I'll call it, belch, spasm of Satan in the end. Okay. Christ is overcome at the cross and the resurrection. There's one final battle, spasm, 
and, and, what, you realize, and, and what you realize is, is that the, that whoever is left, and that's certainly open to debate, and I'm not debating that now, but there, you, you get the distinct sense that the people who, of God who truly, truly are following the Lord have come to realize, they've come to realize that they are not supposed to be fighting with the same weapons that they're being fought with against. Okay, if you go to Revelation 12, you read this. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens and earth, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in a great wrath. But he knows, not, he knows that his time is short. You know, it, the sword in the hand is the way of the world. But what is the true sword for the person of faith? It's the word of God. It's the testimony of Jesus. How is he going to overcome the world? By the blood of his son. By the testimony of his people who have come to believe. If you think about it that way, then we can say, thank you, God, for you know my, go my coming in and my going out from this time forth and forevermore. Forevermore. The weapons that we fight with in this world are different. They're different. The temptation when we come up against opposition is to fight the same way the world is. But what we see in the book of Revelation, beginning back in the Old Testament, is God's not called his people that way. And that's the thing that I think is just so interesting here. That the word of God and the testimony of Jesus is what's going to overcome the sharpest sword. What defeats the enemy, Satan himself, is the word of God. You take the pain, you take the complaint to God, and you verbalize it. God starts the change process by increasing your faith. That doesn't mean there's not going to be hard times. It doesn't mean there's not going to be violent people, and there will. It doesn't mean we're not going to be, need the protection that God provides graciously, because we do. We need all of that. But the temptation will be, will be to act like the world. And so you read through the book of Habakkuk, and you start to realize that Habakkuk is going through a change process. He complains once. God answers him. He complains twice. God finally says, look, in chapter 2, there are woes, 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 woes. A day is coming, a day of judgment. That day is coming. You can count on it. And you want to be on the side of God when that day comes. Trust me. But, but make no mistake, a day is coming. And Habakkuk starts to finally realize it. And he goes through this process of change. You know what he does? He starts to go back to his own Bible. Chapter 3, he says, Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you. I've heard the report of you. Chapter 3, verse 2. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. See, he's starting to pray. He's got his guitar out. He's starting to play. He's starting to sing. And he's singing according to the truth that's already been recorded about God, that God has done this in the past. It's not as if this is God's first rodeo as it relates to people who do bad things. And he's starting to come around. His heart is moving from complaint to confidence. And that's actually true for each one of us, especially if we struggle with complaint. We struggle with the confusion of knowing what's happening out in the world and that, you know, God, I just don't know about this. How can I move to confidence? Well, you just have to go back to the Bible and start reading what God had already done. You see the fact that he's already been moving. There's no question about it. And Habakkuk's faith, and that's really, I think, what's in view here, his faith starts to grow the more he starts to realize these things. He comes to a realization, you are all wise, God, and I am not. You're all powerful, and you have a plan and timing that I don't possess. 
And that is some of the hardest lessons that we will have to learn as Christians. You know, there are times we get so angry because our plan and our timing just doesn't come together the way we want it. And yet we come to those realizations. If we're coming and growing in our faith, like, yes, yes, you have a plan, you have a time, it's different from mine, and as much as, as, much as it's painful for me, I, I know I have to trust you. I have to trust you. And that's what's going on with Habakkuk. His faith is reconstructing. He's becoming more clear-eyed about the reality of his own situation. He's being rebuked in many ways about the things that he had thought about God that were not correct. God, and what's so wonderful about God is God is drawing him. He's bringing him forth. He's bringing him on. You know, there, there's, there's been... Um, it, it's just so fascinating to me as... There's so much that is being written um, in our culture, especially church culture, about um, public deconstructions of faith and how people are um, out on social media and they're, they're sort of doing this thing publicly where they're renouncing their faith or they're, they're questioning it. And um, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing people that are going through that at all. I just think it's just so fascinating that um, you have a book like this where some of the very same questions that people start with are, are some of the same questions that Habakkuk starts with. But Habakkuk doesn't end in a kind of deconstructed mess. He actually ends in a reconstructed harmony. How do you get there? It doesn't mean every, every question was answered because it wasn't. It doesn't mean that life got any better because it was going to get way worse. So how can, through your own confusion and the fact that life gets worse, can you actually get to a place where you sing? It's because his faith had grown, that God was way, way, way bigger and more powerful than his circumstances. And you can see in that reconstructed faith now that he understands that, you know, God in his nature is, he, he is so much more powerful than the idols that the people that are around him are serving. He's so much more powerful. And he starts to look behind the curtain at the ways in which people are worshiping those idols. And he starts to see, you know, those idols... <laughs> It, what, what makes an idol an idol is the fact that the people have to devote so much time and energy to it. But if you took away that time and energy, it would just be a little thing. It would just be a powerless, little, breathless thing if you just stopped worshiping it. And he starts to talk about the nature of God here in chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. And he says, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. And he says, God the Lord is my strength. In other words, in other words, God alone possesses strength and power. And he is happy, he's happy to give me access to it. He's happy to let me have it. He gives it away. It flows out of him. He's the opposite of the idols. The idols just suck and take it away. But what does God do? God is an eternal giver. He gives me strength. My feet are like the deer I see. My feet can run. He makes me tread not in just the valleys, but in the high places, because he's happy to do so. In the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, this fictitious work about one senior demon uh, uh, consulting with a junior demon about the nature of God points out the contrast between God and Satan with idolatry. And Screwtape, the senior demon, says it this way. He, God, really does want to fill the universe 
with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its mini scale will be qualitatively just like his own. And then he makes this contrast, and I think it's so helpful. We want cattle who will finally become food. He wants servants who will finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. If you could ever see the difference between Satan and God, there it is. If you could ever see the difference between worshiping an idol and worshiping the living God, there it is. It's so tempting. We, we are all prone and subject to it. There's no question. But at the very end, Habakkuk comes to this realization. You are full and overflowing with strength. And I am powerless. I don't understand. And he says something, he says something even more astounding as his faith grows, that even though the famine comes, even though the fig tree doesn't blossom, even though there's no produce in the field, the, the, they, they yields nothing, the flocks are cut off, there's no herd in the stalls, even though, even though the diagnosis may come back the way it's come back, even though the election may go in a way that's not happy for me, even though my job situation might even be more precarious looking at a 2023. 20, 20, even though all these things have happened, I realize that I can still sing because God is happy to give me his strength. He's happy to cap to, to let me track along and some of the things that I'm going to tell him that may not be pretty. Just because they're not true doesn't mean necessarily he won't listen. But I'm telling you, he's tracking along with his prophet in a way that blows his mind. You know, um, one of the, the people that uh, I've been ministered to by it was the 17th century hymn writer William Cowper, and I'll, I'll close with him, with Cooper. Um, he, struggled mightily, he struggled mightily with depression, with suicidal uh, thoughts and ideations. He, he wrote a number of hymns after he came to faith, and it said that he potentially came to faith in, in an asylum, but he, he was so profound in in what he said and what he wrote through his pain and through his struggle. And he, and he wrote um, in his hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him in his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And, I, and I, I, I've been helped by that. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. See, because I do that. I have feeble senses and I judge the Lord. But trust him by his grace. I do that less, but I need to do it more. Behind a frowning providence, and there seems to be a frowning providence. It doesn't seem to make sense, but it hides a smiling face. There's a grace that's there. And even some of the worst things that may happen to you, the frowning providence is, is a means by which he's calling you to reach out to him, even when it doesn't make sense. He may not make sense of every part of it. And, and it might feel like it's getting worse, but he's calling you back to him to take your complaint and move yourself to confidence by his spirit, by his power. And it's so good that books like this in the Bible are here because I think you could take them and read them with some of the people who are the biggest skeptics and some people who have such a hard time. You say, you know, God, it's, this is not a surprise to him. Maybe we should read this together. Let me pray. Father, um, we thank you so much that uh, as we read your word and we think about the truth that is contained in it, that nothing escapes your notice and nothing surprises you. 
that in uh, weeks like this, that while um, the world may brood and, and feel as if uh, they'll talk about destructive things and well, whatever will happen will happen. We know that you are the God in heaven, that you are in control of everything and that uh, while things may seem to be a frown in your providential care, that there is always a face that is smiling, gracious and, and ready to be compassionate. Father, we are humbled and sobered by the fact that you continually judge, that you judge in ways that we don't understand, that even the judgment on uh, this earth happens uh, in wrath that is being poured out in a way in which um, is humbling if we really stop to think about it. And yet, at the same time, you've given us the access to talk about Christ, to read your word. And so we pray that you'll increase that today, Lord, that you'll give us a greater sense of confidence, encouragement, and hope in what you are doing. As we look backward to the Old Testament, we look at the, the cross and the resurrection, and we think forward. Help us, God, in these things, that we will have our hope and our trust and our strength to be found in you alone through these dark days. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.